building business is really tough. If you don't actually do it, then uh, that is like a pretty negative signal. I think that we in 2021 forgot that building a business was really tough. What I ended up doing was taking all of my psychosis and all of my anxiety and all of my concerns and bringing them over to what that was like during that transition in 2022. But, but that's slow. We have $1.2 billion under management. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast brought to you by Propeller Industries. Propeller Industries is a leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies. On this show, we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. And if you're enjoying the show, please like and subscribe on YouTube if you're listening on YouTube or whichever platform you're viewing this content on. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a review as well. If you want to make sure you're in the loop and you want the full experience, you can subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive new episodes and weekly updates of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Ben Lair, who is a managing partner at Lair Hippo. Lair Hippo is a venture capital firm based in New York City who were early investors in Warby Parker, Glossier, and Topicals, for example. He also founded Thrillist. Thrillist is an online media website Ben founded in 2004 and was also the former CEO of Group 9 Media until it was acquired by Vox Media. We discussed that acquisition, actually. That's what, that, that, that's what we start off with, why he sold Group 9 Media to Vox, why he transitioned from to VC full-time, and the evolution of New York startup ecosystem, what New York was known for, what it's known for now, um, and also the goal of when he actually backs a company. Without further ado, here's Ben. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Really, really, uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so last year, you transitioned full-time as a VC. I know, obviously, you were investing as well, um, um, uh, obviously, part of Layer Hippo and everything like that. But um, but I, I believe like you transitioned to, to investing full-time in 2022 after uh, Group 9 Media, which you were obviously the CEO of. Um, sold to Vox. Um, it's a really interesting time to be in VC. What have you? What have you? And it kind of like the first, you know, year or two um, investing um, uh, full time. What was it? He talks to me a little bit about like what that was like during that transition in 2022, and and how are you seeing the market today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, it's been sort of a a funny ride. So we started Lira Hippo in you know 2009, 2010. And I was building Group 9 and sort of doing two jobs at once for what, what turned out to be much longer than I expected to do two jobs at once. And uh, I, I think, you know, interestingly, you know, A, you had just very consistent growth in sort of like the venture market in the, you know, early stage tech sector for a decade, like an extremely long bull run. And... I started my investing at first, you know, hobby and eventually career, I guess, uh, at a time when the, we were coming out of, uh, you know, sort of like the 2008, 2009 tech blow up. Uh, and venture investing was this wonderful distraction from the realities of grinding through being a CEO and an entrepreneur and an operator. And uh, and I, I don't think I fully appreciated how, what a fun time it was. And it, it, you know, it was sort of just this, like uh, this other thing that I did, I spent a ton of time on it, but, um, but it was, but it was in a, a very favorable market. And, um, when I, you know, I was eager to sort of get over to investing full-time when I finally, you know, sold group nine and, and, and made the change, it was at essentially the moment that the sort of, you know, correction, uh, was happening or beginning to happen in venture. And so um, it's been a really, uh, I would say a few things have happened. One is, you know, I, I had, I sort of had emotionally put my stress in my operating job and let, and, and VC was this departure and this sort of like creative expression thing for me. What ends up happening and this is, you know, partially how I'm wired is 
I make the switch over from being an investor, from being an operator as my sort of like primary day-to-day job, albeit I was super active writing a ton of checks here and, and, you know, co-leading the firm, but it was, but it was the other thing. And so what I ended up doing was taking all of my psychosis and all of my anxiety and all of my concerns and bringing them over to uh, the fund Uh, and, 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 and doing that at a time when the market is, uh, is more challenging. I think that this is a, a really healthy and sort of good, I don't know, like, when things are too hot, things need to cool down. It's inevitable and sort of the pendulum swings. I think we're in an, we're in a really unpleasant and uncomfortable part of the pendulum. And so admittedly, I'm, I'm of two minds on, you know, on the one hand, I'm doing the job I want to do for the rest of my life. I'm so proud of what we've built here. I love our team. I love our portfolio. I think that we've done a really good job and I'm so excited for the future. On the other hand, anyone who does not acknowledge that this is a really hard time and, uh, and a really stressful time to be a venture investor is either very naive or being disingenuous. And so uh, it's been it's been a real transition, and um, and I'm working really hard, and we're really working hard and grinding through this market. Yeah, I mean, certainly these last couple of years have been very challenging, especially when you uh, compare to it to a you know um, a uh, low interest rate or you know zero. In- interest rate environment that we had, you know, over, over the, uh, over the last, you know, 10 year period, um, uh, from the time before, uh, why in 2020, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, why in 2022, did you feel like it was the right moment to kind of sell group nine? I don't know. I'm a, I'm a believer that companies generally get bought, not sold. And so I wasn't running a sale process with group nine. Um, I had, you know, I think built good relationships with the folks who I thought might be natural acquirers and, um, you know, a bunch of things were happening in sort of the macro market and things were happening in our business and in some of our peers business where it was a moment where I think consolidation in digital media was inevitable. And there was, you know, there were buyers and there were sellers. And I actually thought that I was buyer. Um, so the conversations that I, I was in market, I was in market positioned as a buyer and in one of, and, and through some of those conversations, it turned out that other people thought they were buyers too. And uh, one of those was Vox. And so I ended up being the seller. But, you know, I didn't come into 22 saying, I'm going to go sell the company. I came into 22 saying, I want to try to create enterprise value. I want to try to build this. And it turned out that, uh, you know, the decision forward was the best path was to build it with Vox versus independently. Got it. Got it. That makes makes a lot of sense. And and interesting kind of turn of events there with with thinking you're actually a... uh a um a buyer when then you actually turn out to be a seller so that's great and um that's that, that's awesome um and you know i mean when i think of obviously like lair hippo and we've had a, and i've had a couple of your um your colleagues on um which has been a lot of fun to host them and i and you know i think lair hippo obviously i have to think about new york and and the new york startup ecosystem and and and, and you all were were there from there from like the be from from kind of the beginning um, um, from the startup investing period in New York. And, um, New York was known for back then just because they had, you know, many more companies and, and what have you in consumer. So, and obviously you all were kind of the leaders of that, of, of, of that kind of moment with obviously Warby Parker, Casper, Everlane, um, you know, BarkBox. Um, but you know, and obviously I know Lair Hippo is also a generalist firm. You, you don't just invest in consumer. You, you, you do, you do, um, invest in um, um, across different categories, but how are you thinking about, and, and, and I guess when I say consumer and think about consumer, um, I'm thinking about like inventory based businesses. Yep. Um, how are you thinking about inventory based uh, investing in inventory based businesses today? So let me, let me, and, and let me add something right before that, which is our strategy here has always been, and, and this may sound cliche and, you know, lots of early stage venture investors say the same thing about talent, but like our strategy has been about talent. It's always been about finding people that we think are excellent and are going to build great stuff. And New York, when we got started, you know, 12 years ago in New York in, you know, for the first five, six, seven years of the existence of Lira Hippo was a market where I think a lot of the best talent wanted to go and build consumer companies. And in particular, a lot of the best talent wanted to go build inventory holding consumer companies. Folks looked at gigantic 
industries that had been around for a long time that had large traditional players that had not been disrupted. And there were new advancements in marketing and in supply chain and in uh, and in a bunch of spaces that made opportunities to build new direct to consumer you know, product companies uh, very quickly. And uh, and so we followed that talent into that category and, and I think did a good job doing that um, in the last five or six or seven years, a lot has changed in terms of the uh, size of the opportunity to go and launch inventory holding consumer businesses. The traditional companies that were ripe for disruption, in some cases already got disrupted, in other cases got smarter and became uh, and modernized. Um, the Some of the sort of unfair advantage arbitrage moments that existed in various uh, with various acquisition strategies, like when you know Instagram first turned on advertising, for instance, uh, those channels got flooded and stopped working as well. Obviously, iOS, you know, fourteen five, like broke a lot of the, you know, the sort of like backend data infrastructure that created some of the really efficient acquisition spending, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, what we've seen over the last few years is a lot of the best talent that five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago maybe wanted to go and build these sorts of Warby Parker of businesses are now saying this may not be as ripe an opportunity or as great a space. And I think that that then gets compounded by the fact that you had a lot of not just early stage investors, but late stage investors pour a ton of money into these businesses that grew really well from zero to one or one to two or whatever, you know, they, they got to $20 million or $50 million or $100 million. And then as they got larger, the the where I think the original thought had been these businesses are going to become better businesses, acquisition got more expensive. Uh, they, you know, going and being omni-channel uh, led to margin issues. Companies overextended their SKUs and got into inventory problems, blah, blah, blah. And so now where you've netted out is later stage investors, particularly later stage tech investors, are much more risk off in terms of backing these kinds of inventory heavy businesses. And so as an early stage investor, I have to A, go and say, do I think that this is where the best talent is going? And B, who is going to continue to finance these businesses in the future? after they get to series A, B, C, um, when I know a lot of the, the folks who had funded the last generation are not going to show up for the next generation. And it's led to a massive slowdown in the number of these companies that are getting started and funded and, and also a slowdown in the number of deals that we've done in that space. Do inventory-based businesses, do you find, have you know, the same return profile, for example, from, like, from like software tech companies um, or, like, or like the, the, the traditional venture model? There are clearly examples of companies where that has been the case. Um, there have been, you know, real venture returns created by product companies from the last generation and from this generation. I think that they are, uh, by the way, and this is the same for software. I think we were, you know, we were in a world that these businesses were easy to build and then everyone thought that you could go, go build any SaaS business. And then that's like the holy grail and easy to, like everything's hard. Everything is hard. And, uh, but, but the reality is that, uh, it, history has shown that a low percentage of these inventory holding consumer businesses have driven really significant venture returns. Some of them have. We have been one of the funds who has been fortunate to be in a number of those companies. But generally speaking, it's been a hard category and there's been probably as much death and destruction as there has been real solid returns driven. And so uh, it's just a space to approach Cautiously, it is a space that I think we continue to have an unfair advantage in. We know what the profile of these founders looks like. We've been around these businesses and seen, you know, great stories and seen mistakes made that I think we can help people avoid in the future. But broadly speaking, uh, these are, you know, these aren't software margin, uh, you know, tech leverage businesses. These. They, they have different dynamics. And so it's harder to drive extreme venture returns. Yeah. I mean, what, what I've kind of found with just talking with um, a number of, uh, a number of investors and um, is even at the early stage, thinking about like portfolio construction might look a little bit different 
if you're investing in consumer brands versus like technology companies, because with consumer brands, like maybe like the ideal return expectation is maybe like a, let's say, let's call it like a four to six X return or, you know, on investment, which is still really strong or, you know, or, or, or an eight X return. And maybe that, maybe the outcome is in like the hundreds of millions as opposed to the billions, which, you know, that's kind of the ideal outcomes on the tech side. By the way, that's a great point. I would say that this applies to the market broadly. I think we got into a world where, you know, the 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 sort of like the cliche, like, you know, I don't invest in million dollar companies, I invest in billion dollar companies. Like the idea was early stage VCs coming and going, if it's not a billion dollar idea, I don't want to do it. And if you actually look at the history of venture outcomes, the average venture exit for a successful exit is in the $100 million range. Very few companies become billion-dollar outcomes. Software or, you know, physical physical product commerce, I do think that rewiring around how do we how do we invest into a business both at entry price and at the amount of total dilution and capital that's going to be brought into this business over time so that we can drive alpha as a venture fund with two and $300 million exits. Like every company is not supposed to be a billion dollar company where you get into trouble is when you raise hundreds of millions of dollars for a business to drive a venture outcome, you need to be worth billions of dollars. But what if you can have a model where you can be self-sufficient and still growing nicely, raising, you know, sub $20 million over the lifetime of your business? Well, if you can go sell that business for two or $300 million, you can drive great returns. I know this is like obviously a tough market to uh, to talk about this in, but like, how do you, um, when you make an investment, you know, at the C stage, since I know that, you know, that was um, kind of like the founding of Lair um, um, at that stage, but how do you also like make sure that you're partnering with like the right company and that kind of under, like maybe like understands that, Hey, like we need to go out. And, and again, this is probably not like, like the best market to actually say this in, but Hey, like if the opportunity sees itself, like maybe it actually might not be the best thing for you to raise like hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe we, um, maybe we, maybe you go seed series A series B and maybe like that's it or, or, or along your like trajectory. We have very explicit conversations with folks before, during, and after our sort of courtship and, and, you know, beginning a relationship about this stuff. I mean, one of the first things that we do after we invest in a company during our onboarding, one of the messages that we try to land very clearly is that late stage capital is not your friend. This is not like the, the, the lack of alignment of incentives of a series C or D investor relative to a founder is significant. And uh, if we look at the best returns in our portfolio over time, th there are outliers, but broadly it's companies that raised less money and built businesses where they had more control of their own destiny. They got to profitability earlier. They, uh, or, or they, you know, if not profitable, were not companies hemorrhaging cash on their way to try to sort of, you know, have someone pick them off before they ran out of money. Uh, you know, the, the, the best way to get a good outcome is to have control of your own destiny, right? Is like, if you have to sell, you're probably not going to get the good deal. Uh, and so how do we encourage founders to be, to sort of subscribe to that, that belief that they're going to need to be capital efficient in their growth. Part of that comes all the way back to the kinds of founders that we pick to work with and that we try to work with. And I would say that we are biasing more towards folks who have been through the, the rigmarole before people who are either former founders doing it again, people who have been on the executive team, uh, of, uh, venture back stuff that has been high flying in some cases, high flying and overcapitalized and and screwed up. Like there's incredible lessons to be learned from being a part of a thing that made mistakes by overcapitalizing themselves. And so, uh, you know, we think that that some of those hardships are uh, character building, and and we're looking for people who have scars from learning lessons the hard way. Can you talk a little bit about how the incentives from Series C and Series D investors, for example, are different to the incentives of seed investors? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I say generally, you know, last money in, first money out, 
much more risk averse, uh, planning for, you know, they, they want to, they're, they're planning for their, you know, two or three X, uh, and, uh, they are, uh, you know, we've seen this an infinite number of times. They invest in a thing. They want to see it working and, and, and be sort of like an outlier in terms of growth for them. If it's not, they lose interest, their last money out, and they just start trying to play defense and make sure they get their money back and can move on to the next one. Uh, that is, that's the, that's the late stage investing model. Uh, and, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the scary things that, that you sometimes have to just be honest about is, you know, how, how much do I want a check, a company to work that I put a million dollars into? Um, I think for a while, someone who wrote a $50 million check or a hundred million dollar check, I naively early in my career was like, oh my God, they want this to work. They need this to work 50 times more than I do. Um, and the reality is their fund is 50 times the size of mine. Uh, and you know, not to say that I don't really want my million dollar check to work, but like part of the business model is that some, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And that's part of, and, and you accept that. And, and, um, I've, I've found that that is the reality for these later stage funds. Not everybody, but for, for many of them, which is, Hey, I put $50 million in. It turned out I was wrong. Hopefully I go get my $50 million back as I'm, you know, top of the cap stack. And then I can uh, move on to the next one. Meanwhile, that's a terrible outcome for founders defensively going to try to repay the cap stack uh, and, and last money in. Are you kidding? Like, you know, you just put seven years into building this thing. You're the last money out. You need to create real enterprise value. And so uh, huge, huge misalignment there. Um, and, uh, you know, I would also say for the most part, you know, when we're your early stage investors are investing in you. Your late stage investors are investing in your company. And those are two different things. This episode is brought to you by Propeller Industries. If you run a high growth business and you're focused on profitability, extending your runway, and improving your operational efficiency, you probably need to finance an accounting whiz that will grow with you. Well, instead of hiring someone full-time, what would be cost-effective is working with Propeller Industries. Propeller Industries is a leading strategic finance and accounting partner for venture stage companies and has partnered with over a thousand startups and high growth businesses across consumer products, consumer tech, and enterprise. Some of the brands that they've worked with are Liquid Death, Olipop, Hims, Farmer's Dog, Away, Movie Pass, and Giphy. Propeller also provides specialized support for fundraising and M&A with transaction advisory services. Propeller's TA team of former investment bankers and investors can step in on more of a project basis when pursuing full-scale financing and M&A. There's a link to Propeller Industries in the show notes if you want to learn more information. So obviously you've had, I think, um, if, 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 if I'm correct, eight seed funds, like you're on, I think you're on fund, um, fund number eight on, on, on the seed front size on the select side, I believe you're on fund number four. Um, if that's right. Um, so how, how large is, it is like the fund eight seed size and how do you even think about how big of a, of a, um, of, of, as a dollar amount, like when it comes to your strategy, um, we can dive in a little bit of your strategy. Um, uh, what, what like the ideal of fund size is for seed? Yeah, it's a really, it's a great question. I think what you've seen over time as the sort of more and more interest has come into venture broadly is you've seen fund size get bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, there's now people who have $500 million, $600 million seed funds. Uh, that, that feels really big uh, and, and hard to sort of rationalize as a business model, but AUM is attractive to a manager, right? Like, you know, assets under management means fees, means uh, yep. And for some of these funds, it's a lot more than 2% or a little bit more than 2%. So, uh, yeah, I, I think what you see is, uh, there's been a, a drive towards larger funds. That is not the, f that is a shared fault. LPs have been there to provide those dollars and GPs have taken the money. And it's not like GPs did something wrong or LPs did something wrong. The whole space got overheated and funds got too big. Um, our funds have gotten bigger sort of like incrementally fund over fund. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, one of them is 
you know, going from our first funds to where we are now, our ownership has grown. And so in the early days, we might have owned one or 2% of companies. Now we're owning 10% plus of companies. And so there is natural growth that comes with that. I think if you are a seed fund and you're trying to move up to own much more than 10%, some, you have to make some changes in your model because uh, you can't be collaborative. Every deal that we do, we're collaborative. We're working with other groups. We're taking 10% of usually a 20 or 25% dilutive round. And so we're able to work, you know, generally, I'd say really nicely with other funds who we think add value, who we like to work with, who founders have pre-existing relationships with, or who founders think are going to be great partners, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so uh, it's important for us in terms of how we source deals and how we sort of participate in the ecosystem that we are not going and trying to gobble up 15 or 20%. I think the funds that are that move into 15 or 20%, it feels really good because they're able to say, well, I have lots of ownership. I think that you limit the pool of companies that are ultimately going to want to work with you in the deals that you're going to see because you shut off some uh, opportunities that are not looking for one singular partner uh, from a founder perspective or some deal flow from other venture funds and angel investors who you know, don't want to share a deal with someone who's going to try to gobble the whole round. And so, um, you know, we, our, 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 our check sizes have gone up. Um, we now make between 40 and 50 uh, core investments in each fund. Um, that's a strategy that we've executed now for several funds. And we think it's a, a, a strong position where we have both enough variety that any, uh, it's sort of the right size where any single company can be a fund returner. So we have enough shots on goal, but we don't have so many shots on goal that uh, we end up being an index fund of sort of like, you know, broad, like what does seed in New York look like? Yeah. And so we're, you know, we think we have the right mix of concentration and, and it's something that we re revisit every fund. Um, we've also, you know, over time made slight tweaks or maybe in some situations more significant tweaks to how we think about reserves. Um, and, you know, money for original checks versus following on. Um, I think, you know, we've learned over time that uh, we think follow on capital is important for a bunch of reasons. One, we think it's important to the best founders to know that they're going to have supportive capital down the line um, if they do their job from insiders. I think it's an important signal in the market. And so it's something that we want to do um, in terms of being able to get into the best early stage deals. Um, we also think that when we, you know, we have sort of an unfair information advantage or, or, you know, any insider has an unfair information advantage of understanding how a company is behaving. And so knowing if there are places that we want to, you know, put more money in and buy up uh, is a, is a tool that we can use. And then I do think that over time we've seen that, um, and we're seeing it in this cycle, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years later, you can have really great companies take a stumble, not a huge stumble in some situations, but a stumble need capital. And if it's, and if you, and if you're one of those companies, then you take a stumble and you need capital in a market like this, the folks that are coming in to save the day are predators and are doing, I think, uh, you know, are, are, are just really, really, really trying to take a pound of flesh. And, um, that can be really problematic for the early stage investors who don't have late sort of reserves, years down the line. And so thinking about how we are able to be defensively minded, because you never know when you write a seed check, what the series B or C or D market is going to look like years down the road when those companies are, are raising money. And, uh, and if it's a market like this one, you may find some uh, pretty unpleasant outcomes if you're not uh, set up with a little bit of cash. So is, is follow on pro capital actually a good thing? Um, especially like in, in today's market, because on one hand, yes, it is like a positive signal, right? It is a positive signal that you're that you're that you're following on, and of course, you know, you, um, you know, as a seed investor, for example, looking at you know um, having future investors to be um, part of um, the company's journey, um, you um, you obviously know probably the most about the company since you've been working with the company um, since since you invested in the company in the past. But if you don't follow on, if you don't actually do it, then um, that is like a I would think a pretty negative signal for the for the company. So like if if 
does it actually like i understand in terms of like you know following on prorata cap prorata makes sense from like a return uh, standpoint and, and, and you want to keep that percentage but what's your philosophy about you know follow on prorata um signal um um overall and also like how do you decide like what are your kind of metrics or like viewpoints in terms of deciding which portfolio companies you actually follow on versus not yeah it's a it's a great question it's an ongoing conversation and something that i think we and probably our peers are all cognizant of. If we look back historically, our follow-on capital has performed well. Um, we feel like we've done a pretty good job of following on and um, generally it's been, it's been, you know, we've made good investments as following, by the way, and plenty of bad ones. And that same could be said for seed. Uh, but like we, um, I would say that Something that I find to be interesting is it's not clear what companies are your best companies two or three years in. It may feel like it is, but we've been, we, you know, one of the benefits of doing this for a long time is we have uh, a bunch of cycles to look back at learnings. And one of the learnings is the early breakouts in a fund, your companies that three or four years in look like your, your best companies are not necessarily going to end up being your best companies. We've had companies that have been slow, quiet, meandering companies that eventually find it years later. We've had companies that fail and pivot and save the day. We've had companies that look like extreme breakout successes and become victims of their own success. They overraise, they uh, they get they, you know, they, they get full of themselves and end up making all kinds of mistakes. Uh, and so, um, I'd say what we, what we're trying to do early is, uh, err on the side of, if we think we like what's going on broadly, and we think that the round is being done in a sober, rational, reasonable way, we want to continue to protect our investment in the early days. If we think something is around is coming together in a way that we're uncomfortable with, we think that, you know, by the way, there's going to be situations where a company is a good company, but we've just had a really unproductive relationship with the founder. These are few and further between, but like these are real human relationships and sometimes it happens. And so, you know, we, I understand the signaling. I would say that generally we want to be on the side of like highly company supportive. Um, I think in any round, any investor who participates, even if they have a policy, which is we do not do follow-ons, I see the investors who explicitly say we do not do follow-ons in certain situations do follow-ons. Like, I just, I, 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 you know, I don't think that unless you're going to have a like true black and white, really firm policy that under no circumstances ever are you going to write a follow-on, there is some signaling risk. Um, the reality is this, build real companies and you're going to have capital available to you don't and you may not and the you know the signaling risk and all this stuff becomes in 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 really good companies nobody cares what the early stage investors are doing in fact in really good companies often the next round investors are trying to make sure that the early stage investors don't get their pro rata <laughs> and so you know i i just don't think it's as clean as uh as we might all like it to be have you had companies where you haven't exercised your 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 pro rata that have done really really well still? Oh, totally. Uh, yes, we've had. I mean, that's one of the benefits of you know doing this a long time. We've had companies where we passed and they ended up being awesome. We've had companies where we went, we really ponied up and we were really excited that did less awesome, uh, and and everything in the book. I mean, we've we've seen it all, and so. Um, that's you know and 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 the product of all of this experience is is sort of the today's strategy which will be incrementally different from you know next year's strategy we're 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 learning and we're trying to be active managers uh and and not just like run a playbook so as i understand that you um ideal target for each fund 40 50 investments um how do you think since you all are are, are generalists how do you think about you know um, types of categories or, um, or number of companies per each category? How do you even like define, you know, specific categories to, um, uh, to invest in? And is there kind of a, okay, we need, um, a certain amount 
um, in for let's say like consumer brands or considering them out here and like in like B2B SaaS in in this particular vertical or you know since um, AI right now is is all the talk do we need like a lot of AI companies like how do you how do you think about it from like a category perspective? So we think about it at a, at a I'd say loose and high level. Um, we want as we think we'd like vintage exposure to like the large areas of the American economy. And so, you know, we're going to want some consumer brands generally in every fund. But again, we are chasing talent. And so if it turns out that, you know, you know, where we think like A plus talent is right now is generally matriculating away from direct to consumer brands, we're going to have fewer of those because we're not going to force our way and say we have to do, you know, this is a big part of our strategy. We have to make sure we do those if we're not finding the opportunities. I mean, we are we are proactive in finding great talent and reactive in terms of what those categories are. There are then filters, let's say. And so we think about what the world, we, we imagine what the future looks like. We spend a lot of time talking about what we think the world is going to look like in the future and how people are going to work and how people are going to live and, and how people are going to, you know, encounter the healthcare system and how people are going to travel and, you know, like broad uh, areas of, of lifestyle. And we think about, you know, uh, you know, a, a topic I think that we talk a lot about is the environment and, you know, how will changes in the environment lead to, you know, business opportunities and, uh, and business risks. And, and then from there, uh, you know, we tend to have areas that we're in a, in a window, maybe a little bit more focused on. Um, and then, um, as we, I would say, sort of, you know, good deals beget good deal flow. And so, you know, four or five years ago, we started to get interested in the energy transition. And we, it turns out we made a few investments. And, uh, you know, one of them was in a company called Palmetto that uh, in, the, in the solar space that um, was sort of a pretty quick breakout for us. And we, uh, you know, got close with the the CEO there, and he was an active angel in the energy transition space, and and knew the space really well. And um, you know, he started to send us some stuff, and we started to send him him some stuff, and uh, and then we suddenly, a few years later, found ourselves with a few more bets, and and then p picked up our head and said, "Wow, we really actually have a pretty interesting portfolio of." Uh, energy transition bets. And then when you have an interesting portfolio of bets in a category, you'll learn a lot. You spend time with these companies and you and your perspectives get more and more nuanced. And we're able to think about the business models and the spaces that we like more or less. And, you know, it, it is a like the business that we're in is people first, industry second, and company third. Uh, and, and I say that, you know, where we can get messed up at seed, I mean, we can get messed up in a bunch of places, but one of the places that I think we can get most messed up is taking, looking at, you know, the data two months post launch and saying, oh my God, it's working perfectly. It's amazing. This is going to be a huge company. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And then sort of, those are the deals where when we get totally hot and bothered by, you know, whatever the early breakout success is, three months later after we make the investment, inevitably things have sort of cooled off or whatever like weird little acquisition hack they had has stopped working or, you know, and, and we sort of are like, okay, we, we got tricked. And hopefully in that situation, we still think that we invested in the right founder in the right space and then that's okay. The worst is when you go, we made, we sort of made we like talked ourselves away thinking the founder around the idea that the founder was good, but maybe not great, but it's okay because the company is great. Like we have to make sure that this is, you know, we say this, I said this this week in the partner meeting, like if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And that is a people-based decision. We cannot do the, like, we like the person and we love the company. We're going to be wrong. So how do you, how do you evaluate talent? Uh, I, look, I, I think early stage investing is as much or more art than science. Uh, this is, uh, you know, pattern recognition. I think that, you know, when I look at our team here and the skills needed to be a great early stage investor, I think soft skills are critically important in how you assess people and how you uh, assess someone's ability to lead and motivate um, someone. I think we're looking for people who we think have uh, sort of unfair advantages in the spaces that they're going into. 
um, I, I, we're, we're biasing against the like really, really nicely pedigreed Stanford or Harvard business school person who does not have practical experience in X category, but that uh, did a really good senior project and decided that they want to go launch a category in a space. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we bias against folks who are, who think about starting a company as an alternative to getting a job. I don't know. I may go and join Meta as a product manager, or I may start something. It's like, hmm, like that's like, like, so you're going to use our money to like, go see if this is a thing or you're somebody who, who has a personal deep passion and like, uh, like there's a thing that like an itch you can't scratch and you need to go start this thing. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you can't graduate from HBS and be someone who has an itch that you can't scratch. But I think that's what we're trying to figure out is, is this your life's work or is this a, is this a, you know, consulting project outcome? Yeah, no, that's a fair, that's a fair point. Um, you know, just someone, just because someone maybe has, um, you know, incredible pedigree and, you know, obviously, um, maybe have been lured for, for, um, with incredible job opportunities. Um, are you going to take it or, or is it something you actually, actually want to build? Um, and of course, um, you Ben, you know, you're, you're an entrepreneur yourself, you know, how all in you need to be in terms of building the company and I actually have, um, uh, be obsessive when it comes to actually, um, to actually accomplish, accomplish something. Cause no, no matter what category it is, building a business is really tough. Yeah. I, building a business is really tough, really tough. I think that we, the Royal, we forgot that, uh, in 2021, everybody forgot that building a business was really tough and it is really tough. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think that you know, obviously we have sort of like some of our secret sauce into the different ways that we think about talent, but like, uh, there is, you know, uh, like you said, I've, I, you know, I'll just use me, not like the firm, but like I've, I, I, you know, I built stuff. Um, I, you know, at various times I did a good job at other times I did not as good a job as an operator and as a founder. And, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with and hired a ton of people over the years and now made, you know, a few hundred investments. And like over time you sort of, you start to meet people and say, ah, you know what? Interesting. This person reminds me of this other person that I've worked with and that we've backed and they think about the world the same way. And I look at where this worked and where it didn't. And in some ways this is inelegant, but in other ways it's, uh, I think, uh, really powerful. Do you find when you think about area expertise, you know, in, in this example with pros, as you mentioned, you thought that their, their area of expertise was, was distribution. Um, do, do you find, and I know you mentioned like, obviously it, it, is it, you know, supply chain, for example, mark marketing, for example, um, what's the kind of area of expertise there? Do, do you find that you kind of skew like, or, or navigate towards one type of persona when it comes to, um, founder, like, do you prefer for, for example, a founder that, um, is, um, um, has like branding marketing chops and that's what they're, you know, really kind of special at. And, and that's kind of their superpower. Or if it's the, if it's really building product and on, on the supply chain side, um, is there, is, is there like a type of, 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 of uh, a founder in that kind of like persona that you prefer to back? It's a, it's a really good question. I don't think that they're, you know, where I biased may be different depending on the category and the kind of company in any given situation. Um, what I would say is top 1% talent at whatever it is that you are a specialist at is important. And so if you're going to be a marketer, you better be a really, really, really freaking good marketer if that's going to be the unfair advantage of the company. And if you're going to be, uh, you know, I would say over the last few years, we had a little bit of a bias towards not what's on the bottle, but what's in the bottle. That's a sort of, you know, a, a, a sort of kitschy way to say, how do, how are we backing companies that are creating really pro like protected IP, more efficacious product, something that stands out in the actual, uh, 
in the physical product itself versus how the product is marketed. Uh, it, it's, you know, we've done a few sort of connected hardware companies where, uh, you know, multi-year slogs to go build a, a sort of a patent portfolio and create something that is really differentiated from a product perspective. Um, and, you know, eventually you're going to get to that business having to be marketed, but the real skill set of the team, at least in the early days, is going to need to be a team that knows how to, you know, go, you know, build that really, really, really difficult, you know, piece of technology versus in a different situation where, you know, you may find a founder who has just incredible insights about uh, a certain demographic. I look at a company in our portfolio like Topicals um, and, and Olamide, the founder who uh, understood the pain point for a specific underserved customer in this just like incredibly intuitive way. And when I met her, it was a slap across the face that you were talking to a woman who deeply, deeply understood who she was building for. And the bet we took was that she understood this woman and was going to be able to connect with her. And guess what? Correct. Uh, and she has. And, um, and in that case, like her unfair advantage was not that she knew how to, you know, run a supply chain and manufacture a better product. She's learned how to do that and surrounded herself with people who know how to do that. But that was not the background. The background was being an incredible uh, community builder and, and, and marketer and connector. And I think that, you know, we've won with companies like that. And we won with companies that are, you know, scientists building a product. And, uh, and so I don't want to say I'm looking for great marketers, find me great marketers, or I'm looking for great scientists. I'm looking for outlier talent who is going to be absolutely special at whatever that special thing is that they do. It seems like because, um, you know, and, and, and you were saying on the, on the, um, you know, uh, you put it really well about we've kind of, uh, cared more about what's on the bottle rather than in the bottle. If, if we care more about what's in the bottle, do you think that, that we're starting to skew with like more towards like investing in like the scientists or people that are actually like more like, 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 like the product side builders rather, rather than the marketers? We've we've I, I think if we look at our portfolio over the last you know few years that's that's probably been the case you know we've a we have a funny situation in a in a stealth company in our portfolio that we invested in a long time ago that's actually not been announced yet uh where we invested in scientists who were building a consumer product and it turned out that they were so good at being scientists that the product that they're building that that, that they never launched a consumer brand. And what they're building now is uh, a, a, I would say, sort of a, a back end to go and create unbelievably efficacious, really, really special, potentially incredibly valuable formulations. And they're probably not going to be the ones to market those products. And so, you know, but you, you, you get on, but by the way, when we invested in them, we didn't say these are going to be great consumer marketers. We said, these are going to be badass scientists who are going to make incredible stuff. And it turned out that the incredible stuff that they're making is going to be coming to market differently than we had originally uh, envisioned. What you, if you don't bet on people early, it's rare that you find those sorts of circumstances where you bet on why and you're wrong and you still end up being right because the people are amazing and they, and they sort of move and, and find their way to the right outcome. If you, if you're betting on a company, it's rare that you get, you're able to sort of take advantage of the pivot. And the pivot is, I think, an important part of the business model for the seed fund. I just kind of, I'm just so curious because, you know, obviously you've been in media for a long time, um, with Thrillist and obviously, um, and obviously everything, everything with, with those companies. But, um, how do you think, um, obviously there's, there's a lot of chatter about AI and content today. Um, how, how do you, do you, how do you think about running like a content media business today? Do you think that AI will, um, will do the majority of the writing or, or, or will be so helpful in, in terms of the writing side on the content that these are going to become much leaner businesses? It's a really good question. I'm sure you could probably talk for like an hour about this. But I think anyway. that uh, uh, what, what I would say is, um, 
for for lots of different kinds of content creation, AI will play a really active role. I think that there will always be a place for incredible journalistic and creative talent that maybe in the background they're using AI to, you know, augment workflows or, you know, help them do, you know, various kinds of sort of rote work, but that like real creative talent is will will always have a place to be valuable. I think that sort of mediocre creative talent is probably going to be more disruptable in the sort of short and media medium term. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing if media businesses are able to run more efficiently because of using technology, particularly in digital media, we have not seen the business model be a great model. Uh, and so, you know, are there winners? Yes, but there's way, way, way more losers. And so figuring out how to do more with less, not in the spirit of being able to like eliminate tons of jobs and fire people, that may be an outcome of that in some way, shape or form, but in the spirit of building sustainable, scalable, better businesses, using AI is going to be important. And I think is a great opportunity for digital media, um, you know, look, I have little kids and I think about this a lot just in terms of, you know, what are the, like, what are, what's the job market going to look like and what are their careers going to look like? And, you know, on the one hand, like I said, like, you know, for great journalists and great talent and top 1% marketers and top 1%, like there's always going to be great opportunities. The reality is, you know, math would say that most people aren't top 1% at anything. Uh, you know, they're, and, and, and by the way, I'm one of those not top 1% at anything people. And so, uh, you know, I look at my kids and I, I, I worry about a world where extreme excellence has a place, but everything else gets, you know, eaten by the robots. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know what that looks like. I am both excited by and terrified of AI. Um, and, uh, it, you know, the, the, the media business today at any step is really is tough and getting worse. It's getting worse. Like, I don't care if you're a streamer or you're a TV company or you're a podcast, like it's getting worse everywhere. And if AI can help some of these businesses get better, let's figure that out. Yeah, that's how I kind of view it as well. I don't think that journalism or anything like that is going away. I just think that that it's an opportunity to actually create leaner, more sustainable businesses um, on the on the media side because digital media has been um, no one's really cracked in terms of the code. I mean, obviously there, there has been winners that that's um, that's true, but um, you know it. But um, di digital content has been really challenging and, and obviously very disruptive to like the old model um, where the old model was very lucrative uh, uh, across the board. Um, so, uh, Ben, thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Mike, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And there you have it. It was a pleasure time with Ben. Ben, thanks again so much for coming on the podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please hit that subscribe button, whether you're whether it's on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you're really, really enjoying the show and you don't want to be left out of the loop, subscribe to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com. You'll receive all the latest funding updates each week, and you'll receive... Uh, notifications on when each episode will be released or is released. Thanks for listening.